Ron Ananian. Like I say, if you're in your 40s and you haven't got a regular mechanic yet, something's wrong. There's, It's just strange to me. The Car Doctor. I think you should go buy a new vehicle because you've got an 11-year-old vehicle with 150,000-plus miles on it. The engine ran out of oil in October. Welcome to the radio home of Ron Ananian, The Car Doctor. Since 1991, this is where car owners the world over turn to for their definitive opinion on automotive repair. If your mechanic's giving you a busy signal, pick up the phone and call in. The garage doors are open. But I am here to take your calls at 855-560-9900. And now, here's Ronnie. Hey, welcome. Ronnie and the car doctor. Come on in, sit down. Remember, the phone number here is 855-560-9900. This radio show is brought to you also by podcast. You can get out to cardoctorshow.com. There's podcasts there. There's also links to various websites. Tune in, iHeart, iTunes, Google Play. And uh, you can also look up all that you want there in terms of getting a podcast brought to you and take us with you wherever you want to go. We've been on the air, oh, 25 years or so or longer for those of you that are new to the Car Doctor family. I want to thank you for stopping by and you know, this radio show is really about fixing your car. It's um, no egos, no emotions, just, you know, here's the facts. Uh, it's sort of like Dragnet. I often think it's like Dragnet, just the facts, man. That's all I want. I remember my first producer way back so many years ago, they said, just tell it like it is, Ron. Try not to get emotional about it. Of course, I guess I've I've grown, right? I've gotten a little emotional from time to time because some things just make me insane when it comes to fixing cars, but uh, everybody's got their picadillos. And without um, any further mention, let's uh, let's get past those picadillos and open the garage doors. We're not going to do an opening monologue right just yet. Let's get over and talk to – let's go over to line one, talk to Jasper in Maine, 2003 GMC Yukon. Jasper, welcome to the car, Doctor. How can I help? Thanks, Ron. I appreciate it. Um, I'm calling in for my son here since he's at work and everything. He has an 03 Yukon. Right. And uh, 5.3. And lately – What's been happening to it is, as he's driving, it just will shut down, shut off, radio goes off, um, gauges will all drop, but they come right back on. He can restart the vehicle immediately. Um, it also is very common to happen, like whenever he's coming down to a slow stop, and as soon as he stops the truck, it everything shuts off, but he can start it right back up. Okay. Um, there's never any codes in it? Anybody ever do any, anybody do any diagnosis? Nope. Nothing. We did a, uh, he took it in and checked it for codes. No codes came up. Uh, check engine light does not come on. And we checked for a ground wire, I think, on the back of the right bank cylinder head to make sure everything was tight. Uh, I was told that there was a ground there before uh, that has a habit of loosening up or something. Else. So we checked that, and that seems to be okay. Well, there's two grounds back there. All right. And what, what they're talking okay. about is, let me tell you what I think it isn't, and then I'll talk about ground 103. All right. Um, okay. I, I don't think it's an ignition switch, but I want to mention it because it, it wouldn't be completely impossible that this is a that this is an ignition switch issue. You know, think about it. You're driving down the road. The car shuts off. You lose the radio. You lose dashboard lights. It's almost like somebody turned off the key. Right. Cuts the power. Right. Yeah. So, you know, where I would always start this diagnosis after you go through a code scan and I'm sure you're not going to see anything there. Uh, you know, I would just go to the battery, make sure the terminals are good, clean, and tight. You'd be amazed by how many vehicles, especially GM side terminals, I fixed over the years, just loose terminals. And I couldn't tell you why yep. or how in terms of why they loosen up. Uh, some of them are on vehicles we work on. And seven, eight months later, for whatever reason, the terminal will loosen up, and, you know, you snug it up, and you're, you're fine. Um, okay. That being said, 
I always think about ignition switches. And when I get down to the painstaking part of it, what I will do is I will take uh, either a two-channel scope or I will take two voltmeters and hook up a, a, a device. I want to look at voltage into the switch and voltage out of the switch. Typical GM ignition switch has two powers in and one power out. All right. I'm not saying I know that for a fact on yours. I don't keep that in my head. But I would look at a wiring diagram and look at my inputs and my outputs. And I would want to make sure when the vehicle fails, and I, I usually start on the outbound side. All right. So I'm looking at the outbound leg of the ignition switch that feeds the PCM and wakes up the dashboard and everything else. I want to look at that and see, hey, did I lose voltage there? If And the way I would do that is I put the voltmeter in min-max mode. When And you could duplicate this to see what would happen is by turning the switch on and off. Put the DVOM, put the digital voltmeter in min-max mode, turn the key off, that voltage is going to go where? Zero. Now, would that only work if it's if it's a constant failure? Because, like I said, it, nope. well, it, here, it fails, and then within a matter of a second, it comes right back on. Well, well hear me out. If, if you hook up a voltmeter to a source measuring 12 volts that's keyed by the ignition, and you turn the ignition off, what's going to happen to that voltage? It's going to read zero, right? It's going to drop, obviously. Yeah, it's going to, it's going to disappear. Min-max mode in a, in, a, in a meter gives you the ability to record the minimum record voltage okay. and the maximum voltage. So to answer your question, if we put it in min-max mode, now obviously you've got to put it in min-max mode after you hook it up, because if you do it prior... You're always going to see zero voltage and then turn it on. You're going to go, well, okay, look at my min-max. It's 12 and zero or 14.2 okay. and zero. So hook it up, start it up, connect it, put it in min-max mode, and you know what? Duplicate it. See what would happen. I always say you have to test good cars so you know what broken cars look like. Turn the ignition switch off. Mm -hmm. You should be able to review that on the voltmeter and see zero. All right? And then at least you'll okay. understand what you're looking for and why. That being said... Take the car for a ride the next time it happens. And it might be a little tedious having to do this. And I've, I've driven around New Jersey with two voltmeters and a lab scope hooked up to a car for two weeks at a time once in a while just trying to catch something in the act in order to fix it. And when it does, where do we lose the voltage? Where are, we, where are we missing what we need to keep the car running? That being said, all right, yeah, this could be any one of a half a dozen connectors. But what's very common with these is ground 103 and 104. And it's not a question of it being tight. It's a question of it not fraying. All right? And ground 103 is more susceptible to it. You you have to get your... Oh, I'm trying to think of how to explain this. You have to crawl on top of the engine, do this when it's cold and off, and put your head in a position that it hurts so that you're looking right at the back of the distributor. When When, when the top of your head hurts, you're in the right spot because that's where ground 103 is. This isn't something you're going to see easily, all right? You're not going to see this easily, but ground 103 is a black lead coming off the passenger side of the main engine compartment harness, and it's usually hanging on by a strand. And I've, I've had them come in the shop where identical description to you, all right? And all I'll do is I'll just give it a little... A little flick of my thumb and forefinger, the wire falls off, the truck stalls. And the reason is because mm. my, my thumb and forefinger broke the last strand in a 15-strand wire. 
So looking to see that the ground is tight, yeah, that's good. But is the harness broken? Typically the harness is stretched tight enough that it pulls on the relief of the eyelet and it will start to bend and break the wires over over mileage and it just snaps and it just gets to that point. That is more likely than the ignition switch. That is the main PCM ground. Lose that, you lose the vehicle. All right, sir? Okay, well, that's a good way to take a start. Yeah, but but I would definitely focus on there's two grounds back there. 103 is the light wire. 104 is the heavy wire. 104 will probably be in place and fine if they're both tight. Look at the harness. If you can pull on either wire and break it off in your hand, that's bad. And that's where you're going right. to start. All right, sir? Excellent. So Thank do, you very much. That. You, know, you, you know, know where to find me if you need me, Jasper. You're very welcome, sir. Good luck to you. Okay. All right. Have a good day. Take good care. 855-560-9900. I'm Ron Anany and the Car Doctor here to answer your questions. I'll be back right after this. Ron Anini, the car doctor, rolling along here at 855-560-9900. Let's get over and talk to John Merritt in Connecticut. John, welcome to the car doctor, sir. How can I help? Hey, Ron. Um, I learn so much from your show every week. It's awesome. Thank you, sir. Um, I have a 2010 Honda CRV, and the battery in the vehicle is coming up on seven years old. So I figure it's about time to replace it so it doesn't leave my wife high and dry. She's yep. a primary driver and she works third shift. Yep, yep, I agree um, with that. Should I just go back? Should I just go back to the Honda dealer and buy another Honda battery, or is there a particular type of battery that you recommend? Well, we we always talk about power frame grid technology, and it's not necessarily a brand of battery, but it's the technology that's in it. And to my knowledge, the only place you can get power frame grid technology batteries right now is at your local advanced auto parts, and it's their AutoCraft Gold series of batteries. They are. The power frame grid technology is the best in terms of construction. They've redesigned the technology and how the plates and the grids are put together, and they do last the longest. I have to tell you, seven years out of an original equipment battery, you exceeded the the usual mark by about three years. So don't assume the next one's going to last that long, and and typically they don't. Always remember this when you're dealing with vehicle manufacturers. Think of it like this. How long was the warranty on that car? Five years? Four years? Yeah. They, yep. they always make parts to last the warranty period, or they try to make parts last the warranty period because they don't want to have to They don't want to have to pay to fix them. You know, it's not just a matter of the part, but in a dealership, they've got to pay a tech, they've got to pay the service department, and they've got to annoy you, the customer that bought the vehicle, because you've got to bring it back to, to wait for repairs to be made. So they can... They can engineer things to a higher level on on new cars when the car is first assembled versus that replacement part. But power frame grid technology doesn't care whether it's under warranty or not. They're just trying to make a better battery, the folks at Johnson Controls. And power frame grid technology works better because of the design, and it's actually setting the battery world on its ear, if there is one. That it's got everybody looking at over their shoulders saying, hey, why didn't we do this before? You can actually find more at PowerFrame.com and read about it there. You had a second question, John. 
Yeah, we have a uh, 2010 uh, Hyundai Sonata. Okay. And for about the past year, when you go to fill up the car, um, it it keeps clicking off. If you you know put the nozzle in and you you know uh, squeeze the handle, it keeps clicking off. If I pull the nozzle out about an inch, it'll fill without clicking off. Okay. Where should I be looking for what's going on with that? Any check engine light? No. Okay. Well, let, let me take that back. About four years ago, we did get a check engine light, and at that time, they replaced the evaporative canister. Okay. And did the problem start after that, or it's only it only started within the last year? It only started in the last year, so it went several years after they replaced that canister with no problem. Okay. Do you remember the fault code that it had at that time? Was it a P0449? I, I don't remember, okay, Ron. Not critical. What's what's probably going on here is the Sonatas have a filter on the canister, a vent filter, that basically, you know, it, if, if you filled a gas can on the ground and didn't open up the other side, the, the can would build up enough pressure that it would click, 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 click. It would push right. so it wouldn't it wouldn't allow fuel to come in. You open up the other side of that can, take the small bleeder off or open up a portal. It's going to fill the can all day long. Same idea. The charcoal canister has either a vent solenoid or a vent filter on modern cars. And in the case of the Sonata, the vent filter is very common to clog. So even if the vent solenoid, which the filter protects, were to open, it can't breathe. It's, it's Think of an air filter for the car. It's, it's trying to push air through, but it can't. So it builds up pressure in the system and clicks the pump off. Now, the same thing can happen. We've seen this before. We just had an older Ford in the shop that did this where spiders had gotten into the vent line back to the neck. They built a little tiny spider web, and they created enough back pressure that the pump would constantly click off as well. Sort of, if you think, you ever have a a barbecue in the backyard, you know, your gas grill, and yes. you'll, you'll get a spider in there, and it'll build a a nest where it's it's built the web, and then it doesn't ignite because you, it can't push gas through the spider web. Same idea. Right. It, it creates pressure, and it prevents it from lighting. So, uh, you know, okay. that, that would not be completely uncommon. Okay, and that filter, the filter part is replaceable? That filter part is replaceable. It's probably under 10 bucks. Oh, Okay, yeah, it's, very it's, good. It's, it's, I will it's, definitely give that a try. It's it's pretty cheap. If you start to look up and read about that or get down to the Hyundai store and ask them for the vent filter for the canister. Now, the only caveat I want to throw out here is it could also be the solenoid. It can be something else. There's a couple of things it can be, but you know, I would at least take a look at the vent filter just to see how dirty or restricted it looks and go from there. As a matter of fact, Great. if you if you if you look in the owner's manual, I'm almost certain mm-hmm. they consider that part of normal maintenance under the maintenance tables. Oh, okay. I right. will uh, I will double-check that. Yeah. Right. Good luck to you, John. Thank you, Ron. You're very welcome, sir. Um, maintenance cannot be overlooked. I went to, uh, well, I, I took two classes this week, both put on by the folks from Motorcraft from Ford. One was on the 6.7 Ford diesel, and the, the other was on EcoBoost Ford gasoline engines. In both classes, both instructors, three instructors actually, because one, one of the classes was tag-teamed, Everybody still talks about maintenance, and it, it's it's really it's kind of funny to hear a manufacturer's rep because that's what he is 
talk about, yeah, don't believe the manufacturer's recommended schedules. You still got to do maintenance to the vehicle because it, it really comes down to it's just that important. And I was sort of chuckling to myself because I think about what the new car dealer says. You know, there seems to be a a dividing line that when you're buying the car, it's it never needs anything. And then something happens once the check clears because the, the check clears and all of a sudden, oh, you know what? Your car is going to need this and this and this and this and this. And I'm not picking anyone car line. I'm not saying anyone car line does it worse or better than any others. It's just It's just common sense. It's a piece of machinery, and that's all it is. And even with all the computers in the world and, and everything else under the sun that vehicles have, you know what? They still require some basic maintenance. It's just that important for them. Hey, let's do a quick piece of email. Ron, what spark plugs do you recommend for a 2008 Tundra 5.7? Thanks, Joe. Joe, um, listen, get yourself out to Denso. Get out to DensoTT.com and read about the Iridium TT spark plugs. We use them quite often in the shop. As a matter of fact, we did two sets this week. The nice thing about the iridiums, well, first of all, the nice thing about the iridiums is they're very price point conscious. They come at a very good price point. They're not crazy dollars. They're not, you know, $30 a piece like some of these precious metal spark plugs. They're priced very well in the marketplace. They're also a bit of a work of art. You look at how they're assembled in terms of manufacture and the the way they're laser welded and the technology. You know, it's it's you're looking at the Mona Lisa of spark plugs. Every time I see one of these, I think that to myself because they're really made with care. Another interesting fact, Denso, in terms of, um, let me think of how to say this, product quality or manufacturing quality, they are the only spark plug that I've come across in the last three years that I don't have to gap out of the box. And you can see the way they're packaged and wrapped. They're insert. They're shipped correctly, so nothing's going to get damaged. And I, I take that. You know, you can tell the heart and soul of a company by the way they represent themselves, just in the way they package the product. Because they put that much care in the way the product is packaged, you've got to think about how much care they put into the way they manufacture it. But get out to Denso TT, DensoTT.com. Look at the Iridium TT spark plugs, and I think you'll see what I'm talking about. And they should make those for a 2008 Toyota. They don't make them for every vehicle. And we're having this conversation. It's just, it's it's a matter of backfilling and, you know, the volume of vehicles that are out there to, somebody asked me a while ago, how come they don't make Denso TTs for a 93 Jeep? How many 93 Jeeps are left in the world versus a 2008 Toyota? And they have to look at it from a manufacturing point of view as well. But for a 2008 Tundra, yeah, they'll be there. Get out to DensoTT.com. Appreciate the question, Joe. I'm on an the car doctor, and I'm back right after this. Welcome back. Ron, I'm leaning the car doctor here in the driver's seat talking to you about your car at 855-560-9900. I want to thank you for being allowing me to be part of your weekend here or your podcast, however you're taking this broadcast. And uh, once again, here to help and answer your questions, whatever you've got, whatever problems, issues you may have with your car. Let's go over and talk to Jim Springfield, Illinois, 2011 Chrysler TNC. Jim, welcome to the car doctor, sir. How can I help? Hi, Ron. Yes, sir. Uh- yeah, it, it's nothing serious, but uh, it, I went in for an oil change, and uh, it's a 2011, so it's five years old, and the radiator fluid had 
hadn't been flushed and filled. So they recommended that I do it, and I held held off because I got a local guy I I go to. Okay. And uh, uh, it's the red the uh, coolant. And uh, well, Christ, I looked in Christ, the Haynes manual, Chrysler and they said use this, you know, such, such and such type of fluid. Right. And uh, I didn't know if they did a complete flush and fill. Uh, you could use Prestone or Peak, or it, it would be best for because it's a Dodge or Chrysler product to go back with mm-hmm. that red red stuff. Well, it's it's Chrysler Orange. We call it. It's their Chrysler Long Life. In, in 2011. Here's here's the caveat. The reason we've got specific coolants for vehicles is because of the, t- mostly it's because of the type of metals that are being used to, you know, in, in cooling systems, radiators, and engines. And there's, there's issues with electrolysis if improper coolant is used, issues with cavitation, uh, where cavitation being where it, it'll aerate and the water pump won't work as well. Um, it'll create pockets, and you'll have problems. So it's not a case where one size fits all anymore in terms of coolant. Uh, you know, interestingly, we were I was on the O'Reilly Auto Parts website uh, this week looking at something at O'ReillyAuto.com, and I happened to come across coolant. I was looking up something else, and they have three pages of coolant types, everything from Prestone to Xerox to Peak to you name it. It's all there, and it just shows you the diversity in terms of what you what you have to go through. At the shop, I stock nine different types of coolant just because it's the, the, the variety. Of, and that's not everything. Uh, you know, it's, and where do you stop? Because we don't see every car. Not anymore. Right. Not like it once was. Um, so your question to me is, should you use Chrysler or can you use something else? Yeah, I I don't have a problem if I have to use the Chrysler. I I, I just never heard of it before when I looked it up in the Haynes manual. It's that uh, hybrid organic additive technology. Right, Oat Oat Antifreeze, OAT. Yeah. Right. Um, And and you can, you know, listen, uh, the folks folks at Prestone, at Peak, at, 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 you know, Xerox, all of them, they all make coolant that is compatible and it'll work, you know, this works with Chrysler, this works with Ford. You can do that. Uh, you know, here's here's the way I think of it, and I, I I guess this is a funny way. You know, it's you you guys know my picadillas, right? After all these years on radio, you ever watch yeah. that TV show, um, uh, Buying Alaska or Alaska: The Lost Frontier, where they show you that 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 family that homesteads the farm up in the middle of Alaska? Oh, yeah, 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 right. It's pretty rugged. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty rugged, right? And and I look at that, and I keep thinking to myself, how would you fix cars out there? Because you know, it's it's they're thrilled when they can get a bottle of oil. Right. You know, now I got to look at the shop where I've got 14 different viscosities and brands and this nine different kinds of antifreeze. And I'm thinking, how would it work? Right. So, yeah. you know, up there, I guess you take whatever you can get. But you're down here. You can go to the Chrysler dealer. You can use the Chrysler. You can go go to O'Reilly Auto Parts and, you know, you can use some aftermarket derivative, whatever they've got on sale. If we want to try and save a couple of bucks. The key is, is the coolant you're using rated for the vehicle? If it's rated for the vehicle, you're not hurting it because it is the correct composition and it's made for that specific application. Okay. Bottom line. Are are they all about the same price? Or, uh, oh no! Listen, some you know the price. Is the, the Chrysler some, something unusual and pricey? Or uh, my experience, the Chrysler I think is 
If I were to guess, I think it's probably in the twelve to fifteen like dollar a gallon. gallon. Yeah, it's probably yeah. a little more than that. Probably twelve to fifteen bucks a gallon. And then the okay. aftermarket stuff, I've seen it in the same range. So you know, it's also a matter of convenience. What can you reasonably get? But but no stretch of the imagination, and for no reason would I recommend just draining out the radiator and either replacing it with standard green, which doesn't work anymore, or right. draining out the radiator and refilling it. When you drain a radiator and just do a radiator drain and fill, theoretically... Yeah, there's still some in the engine. Well, yeah, you're really only getting about a third of the capacity. You're not getting it all. That's number yeah. one. So you're contaminating the new stuff with the old stuff right away. You know, the other reason, the, the the reason, one of the main reasons you change coolant, very rarely do I see, I'll talk from my experience, from my seat, very rarely do I see coolant not make freeze point protection that the freeze point wears out. It just doesn't happen okay. like it once did. And I'm not sure why. I think coolants are made better and they're more tolerant. The reason I see coolants getting changed, number one, they've reached their life cycle. It's five years and out. But if I'm doing it early, it's usually because the coolant is starting to turn acidic. Its chemical composition oh, yeah. is breaking down, and it's turning into an acid base. This is like that high school science class you took sophomore year right. was with the pH paper and the soft with the acid and the base question. Yeah. yeah, I took that test. I didn't do so good. I became a mechanic. Look how smart I am now. <laughs> but anyway, um, I, you know, it's 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 the acidity level. And you don't want okay. the coolant to be acidic because that's when it will start to rot the system from the inside out and damage the the cooling system components, the water pump, the seals, the metallic portion of it, portion of it, and you'll you'll, you'll have issues there. So it's always best to do an exchange. I don't say flush; I say exchange. Flush denotes pressure in my mind. An exchange is a one for one with a machine that pushes in, pulls out, pushes in, pulls out, and yeah. you know does it. And and that's the other part of it. Doing a coolant exchange versus a drain and fill will remove sediment that's settled. So any particulate that's in the heater core in the bottom of the block and the bottom of the radiator places that might not flow, instead of doing a push-me-pull-you, doing an exchange will remove that contaminant and okay. promote longer cooling system life and vehicle and engine life. Yeah. All right? Yeah, I... They were quoting me rough, roughly seventy dollars for it, so I didn't think that was bad. But no, I just wanted to. That's just is that the coolant, or that's the whole guy, that's the that whole I, process. My local guy, so that's that's that that's just the coolant, or that's the whole process. That was the whole deal. I, I don't know. I, I'm assuming it was. Uh, they called it a flush and fill. Right. So you know how are they doing it? You know, and yeah. that's and that's the question. And for you and for anybody else listening, you go in. Somebody says, "Hey, it's time for a coolant service." Ask them how are they doing it. Are they hooking up a machine, or are they draining the radiator? If they're draining the radiator, they're stealing your money. It's not worth yeah. the effort. Now, the sad part is, and then I'm going to go, the sad part is some cars, you can't hook a machine up. There are some vehicles out there. The the the, the Some of the Fords with the Vulcan with the dual overhead cam motor, the V6, there's okay. no way to get a cooling system exchange on that. It's very difficult. You have to make up some adapters, and it doesn't work. And those cars we recommend earlier than normal coolant flushes because we're constantly trying to remove old contaminated coolant that we know won't come out any other way. As far as the sediment, not much you can do about it in that case because the price to do it will exceed the value of, of what you're trying to work on. Um, yeah. Your particular car, it's easy enough to do with a machine, so take advantage of it. Just doing a radiator flush 
or a radiator drain where you can otherwise use a machine, um, they should put on a mask and you know pretend they have a yeah. They're stealing your money. So, so you're so you're talking uh, exchange, right? I'm talking I'm talking exchange versus just a drain and fill. And typically, an exchange runs, uh, you know, it's typically forty five minutes a time plus coolant. So gauge that accordingly based on your shop's labor rate. Okay. All right, sir. Okay, well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. You're, you're very welcome, Jim. Good luck to you, and have a good rest of the weekend. I'm Ron Annie in the Car Doctor. I'm back right after this. Welcome back. We're on the Indian the Car Doctor. Let's go over and talk to David Franklin, New Hampshire, 98 Pontiac, Bonneville. David, welcome to the Car Doctor, sir. How can I help? Oh, thank you, Ron. I've written everything down so uh, in proper sequence, so I, I won't forget everything. Sure, go ahead. Tell me what's going on okay. here. 3.8 dot super pens. I had to replace the upper and lower uh, intake manifold gaskets because water was coming out of the number one plug hole like a fire hose. I did all the work. I had I had uh, great instructions. Uh, the job went good. I didn't really have any major problem. Uh, I put a brand new uh, upper intake manifold on that plastic, that black plastic thing. Cranked it over. Wouldn't start. Uh, wouldn't start. Wouldn't start. Wouldn't start. So I got out. I pulled the pulled out a couple of plugs. They were uh, ripping wet with uh, with gasoline. So I went back on the internet and I found that. The fuel pressure regulator had a recall in 2005. Well, well, wait, wait a minute now. Before you did all this work, did the car start? Well, it started right up until uh, my last uh, street drag race against some smart-ass teenager. <clears throat> but apparently, that's what ruptured the intake manifold gasket. Okay, so it, it 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 what you're saying is the 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 car died during while it was driving. Uh, just barely made it home. It kept running on fewer and fewer cylinders and just barely made it in the driveway. Okay. All right. So I pulled out the, the plugs, turned it over, and that's when I saw the water coming out of the number one hole. All right. I did some internet research uh, because at first, in the old days, that would have been intake manifold gas. I sure. I mean, the uh, head gas. One or the other. Yeah. Well, apparently... From what I learned on the internet, uh, GM made their head gaskets bulletproof, and it was most likely the uh, the intake manifold gasket. And I'm pretty sure that's what it was, Ron, because once I got everything put back together and turned it over, no no water came out. Okay. And um, but it doesn't anyway, but it doesn't it, start. It wouldn't start. Flooded out. No, no doubt it flooded out. If you pull the plugs out, are they dry or wet? Oh, they were dripping wet. Okay, they're dripping, and they're dripping wet with gasoline. Yes, sir. Okay. No water. There was no water in the oil, by the way, either. I changed the oil and filter just to be safe. Um, so anyway, GM had a unfold, had a recall on the fuel pressure regulator in 05. Uh I I ordered a fuel pressure gauge that hadn't come in yet. So uh, I replaced the uh, I, re- I replaced the regulator. 
go back in the path, turn it over, and it detonated inside the intake manifold. And I was afraid I'd ruptured it. So it backfired. Uh, I, I took a, a flashlight. I went over that whole thing, one or the other. There's no cracks or anything. But now... Well, how would you know? Well, wait a minute. You're saying it detonated the intake manifold. Did it? Yeah. Did it? it so it, it fired in the induction system. Okay, and it physically blew the intake manifold off. No, sir. No, I thought it. I thought it ruptured it. But of course, sitting in the car, you can't tell. Then I got out and looked, and the, the intake manifold looked fine. What I thought then next, because it wouldn't start, I thought I perhaps had uh, damaged the uh, mast. The mass airflow. Right. Pull that out, and I checked resistance about across both coils, and uh, 22 ohms. They're both just about the same. So it's not that. I need I need it. So, so what's your what's your what's your question to me, David? Well, I, I, well, I want to start. Okay. Well, you know, it's let's go back and cover the basics. It ran before. It ran poorly, but it ran before you took it apart, right? Correct. All right. Does it have injector pulse? Does it have spark? It has. There's no doubt it has spark because now when I turn it over, I can hear it firing. I can hear uh, its uh, noises inside the exhaust system where it's uh, apparently pumping raw gas in there and detonating inside the exhaust system. Okay. Do you have the wires on right on the coil for the firing order? Yeah, I checked that three times. Okay. Do you have injector pulse? Now, you're going to tell me yes, but how do you know? I don't know. It doesn't know. I didn't know how to check that. How do right. I check that? Ma'am, a mechanic's stethoscope would be nice to listen to and hear it click while somebody's cranking it over. Do you have a scan tool? Yes, sir. Watch uh, Actron. Okay. So can you look at data stream? Uh, yeah, I can look at it, but it's not running. Well, who cares? Turn the key okay. on. Look at data stream. Do you get a reading out of the mass airflow sensor? Do you get anything? Can you match yeah, that spec to what it should be, key on, engine off? Mass airflow reads zero with the key on or off. Well, then it sounds like, you know what? It sounds like there's a problem in the mass airflow. The mass airflow is going to read something, key on, engine off. It's going to show some little bit of something across it. All right? Okay. Um, it should. That's always been my experience. But, you know, next step is I would take a scan tool, look at PIDs, look for something out of calibration. I would go back over everything very carefully because I think you're getting in too deep and you're missing something very basic in terms of what you've already done. Call me back and let me know what you find. I'll be back right after this. Maybe you can drive my car. Welcome back. We're on the knee of the car doctor, James in Corning, Iowa. I got a minute and a half. Go. James? Yes. James, I got a minute and a half. What's your what's going on? Uh well ninety four Buick Century, uh I was driving it out on the flatland. Right. I couldn't get it over forty five mile an hour. Whistling sound, kinda like a jet or something, you know. Right. A whoosh. Got it back. Got it back home. Popped the hood. EGR valves burn up. Okay. I'm thinking a bad cat. Yeah, restriction in the exhaust. Very possible. 
drop the front pipe and see what it does. Okay. I mean, either that or, you know, put a manifold vacuum gauge on it and see, you know, does it build back pressure as you're driving down the road, and it doesn't take much. You know, a, 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 a pound or two of, of uh, back pressure will be more than enough to completely goof this car up. And that way, and it's never run real, real good when ever since I've had it, but now it just slowly got worse. Right. You know, is it is it dragging out the transmission shifts real quick? Yes or no? Yes. Yeah. It's it sounds like restricted exhaust, so I would tell you to drop it down and take it for a ride, or if you want, pull out one of the oxygen sensors if that's easier for you. Pull out the upstream O2, obviously not that downstream, and see if that helps. It does that save you. Uh, from having to pull the whole exhaust down. But, um, yeah, it sounds like you're headed for an exhaust system. James, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. For everyone else, I'm Ron Anini and the Car Doctor. The mechanics aren't expensive. They're priceless. See ya.